LinkedIn presents. Hey everyone, producer Caleb here. Rufus is off this week, so we're bringing you one of our favorite episodes from the archives. It's a conversation he had with Dr. Anna Lemke. She's a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine and author of the New York Times bestseller, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Before we get into it, though, a quick reminder that you can always listen to episodes of this show ad-free by downloading the Next Big Idea app. There, you will also find hundreds upon hundreds of book summaries written and read by the biggest thinkers in the world. I'm talking about folks like Adam Grant, Daniel Pink, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and many more. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Also, just want to do a super fast plug for our daily show, The Next Big Idea Daily. This week, host Michael Kovnat is sharing decision-making advice from fighter pilots, poker players, and business school professors. Follow The Next Big Idea Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's hear Rufus's conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, finding balance in an age of overindulgence. Anna Lemke never thought she'd become an addict. I really don't care for alcohol. It doesn't do much for me. Caffeine doesn't wake me up. I'm not a big food person. Food has been sort of fuel for me my whole life, but never particularly reinforcing. That abstemious nature makes sense given what Anna does for a living. She's one of the world's foremost experts on addiction. After getting her MD from Stanford, she went on to become the university's medical director of addiction medicine. If anyone had a vested interest in temperance, it was her. But, you know, I discovered a, a drug midlife that was highly reinforcing, and that was... His arms wrapped around me, holding me against him. You know, a variant of the novel. It felt like every nerve ending in my body was a live wire. And I really got hooked on romance novels in my 40s, which was really quite strange. Forever, he agreed, and then pulled us gently into deeper water. Twilight was her gateway drug. After she finished that series, she tore through every vampire romance she could find. Then she moved on to werewolves, fairies, fortune tellers, and necromancers. She got a Kindle, so the next book, her next fix, was just a click away. She stayed up late into the night binge reading. She knew the books were terrible. This is, after all, a woman with a BA in humanities from Yale. But she didn't care. She started taking her Kindle to work. And in between patients, when she should have been taking notes, she was reading graphic, erotic renditions of the boy meets girl fantasy. She was obsessed with that moment when the sexual tension breaks and the hero and heroine hook up. Reading about it was a rush, and soon she was craving that rush all the time. I, I took a book to a party once and hid in a room and read, read during the party. <laughs> Finally, after about a year, she was lying in bed at two in the morning on a weeknight reading Fifty Shades of Grey. She justified this late night binge by telling herself the book was better than it got credit for being, a modern day version of Pride and Prejudice. But then she turned to the next page and it was all about butt plugs. 
At that moment, something clicked for Anna. She asked herself, is this really how you want to spend your time? The answer, of course, was no. She got rid of her Kindle, took a break from romance fiction, and pretty soon, she felt a lot better. Now, needless to say, compared with a lot of addictions, Anna's was relatively trivial. She wasn't at risk of bankruptcy or overdose. She wasn't putting other people in danger. But that's exactly what makes it such an important example. Over the course of her 20-year career, Anna has found that it doesn't matter whether your drug of choice is drinking wine or shooting heroin, shopping on Amazon, or shocking yourself with a masturbation machine, or maybe just reading Twilight. They all have the same effect on your brain. They lead to the release of dopamine, which makes you feel good. And the more you crave that good feeling, the more all-consuming your pursuit of it becomes. That neurochemical phenomenon served us well for millennia. It encouraged us to seek out food, find shelter, and procreate, and it discouraged us from experiencing pain and risking death. The problem today, though, is that there are so many things that make us feel good, and it's so easy for us to access them, that we all, in one realm or another, are like Anna. If we're not addicted to romance novels, then we're addicted to work or our phones or Netflix. So here's the big question. How do we navigate a world of superabundance without developing addictions? Fortunately, Anna Lemke has thought a lot about this and she offers some surprising answers in her new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. It's essential reading for anyone who has a dopamine reward pathway, which is to say, all of us. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Anna Lemke, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Well, Anna, you spent your career helping people with addictions, and we get to know in your book some of the extraordinary patients that you have helped. Just wonderful human beings, colorful and heroic. You refer to them as your heroes. And not only are they inspirational, but, but they're kind of dramatized versions of all of us, right? I mean, you, you quote the philosopher Kent Duddington, who wrote, people with severe addictions are among those contemporary prophets that we ignore to our own demise, for they show us who we truly are. So this is not just a book for people who are concerned about addiction. It's really a book for everyone that has a dopamine reward pathway, which is to say all of us. Exactly. Yeah, you said that very well. This is really um, a book meant for the average person who's wondering about how to live the good life uh, in a dopamine overloaded world. And um I do hold out my patients and people in recovery from severe addictions as modern day prophets for the rest of us for how to navigate this overabundant ecosystem that we find ourselves in. Before we start with, with big idea number one about the pleasure pain balance, I think it could be useful if you could share just a simple definition of what exactly dopamine is. I mean, we've all heard of it, but I'm not sure all listeners understand what it is and how it works. Dopamine is a chemical that our brain makes. It has several different functions uh, in the brain, but one of the most important functions is that it mediates the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. Typically, when we do something that's reinforcing or pleasurable, 
our brain will release dopamine in a part of the brain called the reward pathway. And the more reinforcing and more pleasurable something is, uh, the more dopamine gets released in that part of the brain. So dopamine is very much a signal that alerts us to what is going on in our bodies, in the environment. And it's a way that we are encouraged to approach pleasure uh, and avoid pain, which is precisely what has kept us alive through millions of years of evolution in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. Well, that, that brings us to uh, your first big idea, which is about the surprising relationship between pleasure and pain. One of the most important discoveries in the field of neuroscience in the past 100 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located. By that I mean the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And pleasure and pain work like a balance. When we feel pleasure, the balance tips one way. When we feel pain, it tips the other. One of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to stay level. After any deviation from neutrality, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. For example, I like to watch YouTube videos of American Idol, and when I watch, my brain releases a little bit of the neurotransmitter dopamine in my brain's reward pathway and my balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to the increased dopamine by down-regulating my own dopamine receptors and dopamine transmission. I like to imagine this as little gremlins hopping on the pain side of my balance to bring it level again. Not very scientific, I know. But here's the thing about those gremlins, they like it on the balance. So they don't hop off once it's level, they stay on until it has tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. This is the after effect, the hangover, the come down, or in my case, that moment of wanting to watch just one more video. If I wait long enough, the gremlins hop off the balance, neutrality is restored, and that feeling passes. But what if I don't wait? What if instead I watch another video, and another, and another, and pretty soon, I'm no longer watching American Idol YouTube videos. I'm watching YouTube videos of people watching YouTube videos, alternating with memes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Now, if I keep doing this for hours a day, days to weeks, weeks to month, I end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of my balance to fill a whole room. They're camped out for the long haul, tents and barbecues in tow. Once that happens, I've changed my joy set point. I need to keep watching YouTube videos not to feel pleasure, but just to feel normal. And as soon as I stop watching, I experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance. Anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and mental preoccupation with using, otherwise known as craving. This is the hallmark of the addicted brain. So Anna, I have to ask you, who the heck is Dr. Pimple Popper? And why are you watching these videos? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't watched any of Dr. Pimple Popper's videos? Okay, now I'm really embarrassed. Um, these are videos of a dermatologist. I think she's a dermatologist, just popping people's pimples, pimples large and small. I really don't want to go into any kind of psychoanalytic uh, <laughs> analysis of, of why they're appealing to me, but they are. 
I also like to watch videos of podiatrists shaving away people's calluses and corns. Again, oh my gosh. I, yeah, weird, right? <laughs> um, but <laughs> I can I can literally watch those for hours, just one after another. It's very oh my gosh, very strange. Well, yeah. well, you're you're not alone because I actually did look it up. I had to look it up after, <laughs> and 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 your addiction's a contagion. These are not small yeah. pimples we're talking about here, and, <laughs> right. and and you're not alone. Doctor Pimple Popper has seven point three million subscribers. Right. right. Um, so clearly there's and there's a pleasure pain <laughs> threshold clearly with, with the popping of pimples. So there's more there's more to get into there. Yeah. This basic situation of these gremlins you describe, mm -hmm. maintaining the pleasure pain balance or the hedonic set point. Gosh, it feels like a dire state of affairs. It's a little bit of a cruel trick, right? I mean, like yeah. we, we find a source of pleasure and it's almost immediately counterbalanced with pain. Yeah. And if you continue to tap the pleasure bar too many times, our experience of the pleasure erodes and, and we're building, as a, if I understand correctly, a kind of mounting debt of, of pain and discontent. Yes. <laughs> you know, and it, it feels almost like a neurochemical explanation for our inherent discontent as a species, which, mm -hmm. which I think poets and writers and philosophers have, have known for generations that we are to some degree a discontented species and it's yeah. probably not by accident. Right. But this explains the, what's happening neurochemically. Yeah, exactly. It gives a neuroscience frame for why we are the ultimate seekers, never satisfied with what we have, always looking for more. And again, you know, it, it's what has kept us alive and really dominant as a species for so many millions of years. But it turns out to be a real bummer if you've transformed the world to one of overwhelming overabundance. Now, you know, we've got so many feel-good drugs and behaviors just at the touch of a finger um, that we've all kind of, like our whole existence is sort of fetishized now, and it's it's really strange. It certainly is. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. We can all agree on that. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's strange and getting stranger, which, which we'll, we'll get into. But yeah, no, it, it, it seems like our deeply satisfied humans that lived in our ancestral environment that were happy to work on their suntans, were, were, <laughs> those ones were eaten by saber-toothed tigers. Right. And, and we were descended from the discontented ones who were never totally happy or not for long. That's, that, <laughs> right. that certainly, that certainly describes me very well. <laughs> yeah. And although, although I guess there's, there's some argument, I, I, I suffer from a, a delusion known as optimism, which causes me to always think the world's better than it is. <laughs> Thomas Edison said, discontent is the first necessity of progress. Mm. Show me a thoroughly satisfied person and I'll show you a failure. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not, that's not very generous, but there is perhaps an argument that our discontentedness is tied to this this uniquely human you know set of characteristics that makes us sort of highly productive and inventive right that maybe there's For a silver sure. lining here yeah yeah i mean it it is it is our you know our kind of innate dissatisfaction with almost every experience is is what keeps us sort of striving for ways to make things better except that i do think that you know we are now living in this unprecedented time uh, in which our collective striving has, you know, contributed to a system where every 
need can be instantly met by a drug or a device. Mm, yeah. And so ironically, I do think we've, we've, re we've reached this kind of tipping point where the striving has now uh, led to our increasing discontent. So we've got to find some kind of way to decouple the striving from our sort of relentless pursuit of pleasure and this compulsive overconsumption that's become such the hallmark of, of sort of modern existence. And, and getting into the some of those things we like to consume, um, you say that um, chocolate increases the output of dopamine in the brain by 55%, sex by 100%, nicotine by 150%, cocaine by 225%. How does this compare with other other forms of, of pleasure that we pursue. I, I don't know where a, a Dr. Pimple Popper episode lands <laughs> right. in this context. Yeah. Well, first of all, that, those, those dopamine increases are, are based on experiments done in rats where a probe is put into the rat's brain. Uh, the rat is literally given chocolate and then dopamine increases are measured. And obviously we're, we're not rats, although there is an enormous amount of homology in this highly conserved part of the brain called the reward pathway, which has really changed little over millions of years and across species. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say for sure uh, where all of that falls in the human brain. And I also think it's important to emphasize that our brains, one person to another, are slightly different and that drugs of choice vary. And what what releases, a, you know, a whole bunch of dopamine for you may not may not for me and vice versa. But part of why the modern ecosystem has, bec uh, has become so insidious and made us all so much more vulnerable to addiction is this, um, the novelty and the variety mm. of um, reinforcing drugs and behavior. I used to think I was relatively immune, but, you know, I discovered a, a drug midlife that was highly reinforcing. And that was you know, a variant of the novel, uh, that is to say the, a romance novel. And I really got hooked on romance novels in my 40s, which was really quite strange. So the, the sort of incredible variety of stuff out there now almost guarantees that we're all going to develop some kind of compulsive overconsumption problem in our lifetimes. Well, we don't all have the same dopamine reward systems because I've tried romance novels and they didn't totally <laughs> do it for me. Um, but there, there must have been an interesting moment of recognition for you as you were reading a romance novel at two in the morning, yeah. realizing like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, like, what am I I'm, doing? <laughs> I'm both the yeah. doctor and the patient in this moment. I'm, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also so fascinating to me about addiction and was true for my own experience was how incredibly shame inducing it is, how somehow the, in, the incontinence of our own desires um, produces a powerful shame reaction and, and makes it, you know, difficult to to talk about and be open uh, with others about. Of course, now I've written about it in the book and I've, I've talked about it enough. But even so, every time I mention it, you know, I, I if you could see me, uh, you would see me me um, blush because it's, mm. it's it's just interesting. Also, I think as a physician, we, we expect physicians to sort of, you know, be taking care of other people. And if this person is sort of can't manage their own desire, what then? So um, anyway, it's been, it's been interesting. Yeah. Well, you're, you're modeling radical honesty, which, which is go. one of the things you espouse in the book, which makes perfect sense. And of course, one can't read your book without cataloging one's own sort of bad habits, which at some point turn into addictions and where exactly the line lies between the bad habit and the addiction, you know, is, is sort of maybe a semantic one or one we can discuss. Mm. But, but for me, there's, um, I'm certainly capable of 
compulsive kind of Netflix consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had I've had times where I've thought I'm not sure that was the best use of those hours. Uh, <laughs> the um, I'm sorry, I don't know why that's. Funny. <laughs> I think it's just sort of the, the the flat tone in which you said I'm not sure that was the best use. No, it probably wasn't. <laughs> Although I will say I will say in my in my defense or in the defense of perhaps other listeners, it, it's interesting to me the way we categorize some things as being virtuous and other things mm -hmm. as being bad based on the media, right? So if we're consuming something on a screen, you know, we assume, well, that's, that's bad. If it's in a book format, we, people tend to think it's good. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think there are Netflix shows, there are modern television shows that I think have every bit as much artistic merit as great 19th century novels, right? Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a flourishing genre. Yeah. And, and maybe that brings us to the question of how do we know when it's crossed a threshold mm -hmm. into not being a good behavior and, and into sort of the, the beginnings of a, a negative addiction? For me, the key is the neuroscience. And when our balance starts to chronically be tilted to the side of pain, then we know we're entering, mm. uh, you know, the state of addiction. And the key signals for that are, number one, we need more of the substance or behavior over time to get the same effect. Mm -hmm. We need more potent forms. What was previously pleasurable is no longer pleasurable in terms of our drug of choice, but also importantly, in terms of other things that we used to enjoy, people, places, things. When the world becomes sort of drab and drained of color and our focus narrows to this one substance or behavior as the only or primary source of, of joy, relief, escape, then I think we, we need to be worried. Mm-hmm. Well, well, this is causing me to realize that I, I have a, an Amazon purchase habit. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. Which is not, and it's, and Anna, it's, it's little things. It's, it's yeah. like a set of spherical ice cube makers <laughs> for $14. I mean, it's, it's nice to have a spherical right. piece of ice, right? But my wife will point out that I also have a little bit of a backpack kind of fetish, she thinks. <laughs> but, but there's something about the knowledge that something's coming in the future. It's a little yes. bit like, it feels like planting seeds, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and this makes me think a little bit about, well, where did this dopamine reward system come from. I, I assume that at the heart of this, it, it, it's, a, it's a system that rewards behavior that probably produce survival advantages in our evolutionary environment, right? I mean, I mean oh, that like pursuing sugar, yeah. fat, salt, mm -hmm. sex, novelty, yes, uh, even adventure. Um, you know, these were all things that were selected for, presumably, right? Absolutely. And, you know, what we call natural rewards, food, clothing, shelter, finding a mate, of course, are fundamental for survival and propagation of the species. But what happens in addiction is that we uh, essentially replace or usurp these natural re rewards with, with these other sort of fetishized substances and behaviors like round ice cube makers that we buy on Amazon. And then all of a sudden that thing seems to be necessary for survival, whether consciously or unconsciously, you know, our our motivation system essentially gets shifted toward it and we we essentially lose perspective. And this is really what happens in severe addiction where people really will give up key relationships, jobs, um, their money, everything um, that an objective outside viewer would say is fundamental to their survival. They will give it up for their drug of choice because essentially their, their brain has become confused uh, with uh, what is actually necessary for survival. And this is in, in large part due to this dopamine deficit state, which is such a powerful and overwhelming physiologic drive mm. that once we are in that state, we will do almost anything 
to uh, get our drug and restore homeostasis. And your shopping addiction, by the way, is is not, you're not alone in that. Um, so I've had several patients uh, in the last 10 years or so who explicitly have an Amazon shopping addiction. I have one patient who went into tens of thousands of dollars of debt and got to the point where as soon as the gift would come or the, the thing from Amazon, he would sort of rip it open and then experience a really intense plummeting of dopamine and basically anhedonia, um, right? The moment that he got the thing, it could, it could never live up to expectations. And so then he was immediately then off and running, looking for that next treasure that would, you know, the, the, the backpack that would really be the backpack that would solve all of his life problems or whatever it is. So, and, you know, he ended up with a room full of stuff from Amazon he never used. And then when he had no money left, he basically was reduced to ordering cheap goods like keychains and coffee mugs and returning them as soon as he got them just to keep his habit going. Anhedonia. That was a new word for me. The inability to feel pleasure. I think we could all agree that any addiction that leads you there is not a good thing. But I can't help wondering, is there such a thing as a good addiction, a strong devotion to something positive? I ask Anna that right after this break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. My children were really delighted to see me getting addicted to a video game called SimCity on my on my <laughs> iPhone. And they just thought it was hysterical that I was compulsively playing a video game. And I had to erase it from my phone. Yeah. But what I realized was that what I was doing in this game was not unlike gardening, right? You, mm-hmm. you're, you're building a complex system mm-hmm. and you're, you're kind of watching it grow, which feels satisfying. And you have to take certain actions on a regular basis. And, and of course, gardening itself would probably have been a better activity because you're out in the sun, whatever. And, and so it, it, it's, this has caused me to think that like building a company, which I also do through my iPhone, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I mean, I'm in there constantly and we're building this thing called the Next Big Idea Club and we think it's good for the world and introducing it, you know, wonderful ideas like your ideas to more people. But I have a compulsion around checking the conversion funnel of, of, of people downloading our app and, mm-hmm. jo- and joining the community. And it's, sure. it feels exactly like my unhealthy SimCity addiction. Right. But in the case of building the company, that those compulsive feelings strike me as something that I don't want to discourage because I do you know, think that we're doing something great. And it makes me wonder, are there good addictions mm-hmm. that are the flip side of bad addictions that, that maybe part of what we need to do as individuals is say, okay, we have this reward system that is going to positively reinforce compulsive behaviors. There's some compulsive behaviors like exercise and learning and building companies that maybe we would like to to uh, run with. Do you have a category in your mind of sort of good addictions that we should cultivate? Well, I, I, 
I, you know, as you said earlier, maybe it's just a question of semantics, but when I use the word addiction, inherent in my use of that word is some, some form of psychopathology, some kind sure. of maladaptive okay. aspect to it as different from, let's say, a passion or, you know, life's work or mission driven or other, let's say, you know, more, more optimistic turns of phrase. But I think you're, you know, you're raising a couple really important points. First of all, the analogy with uh, the garden, a garden. Part of what makes these devices uh, so reinforcing is they do have a lifelike organic quality to them. I'm often struck by how much being on a smartphone feels like tending to a living organism of mm. some sort, a yeah. plant or mm-hmm. even a, a baby, a small child, right? Mm. We have to yeah. continually to check it and check in and see how it's doing. And you also raise the the important point about work, you know, and at what point yeah. are the sort of healthy um, investments of our time and creativity, you know, how do we know or when does it pass from from being something positive to being something obsessional and tipping over into addiction. You know, I don't have the answer to that. It's going to be different for every person and their life circumstance. But I do think that one of the key ways to find out whether or not your obsession or your passion or your work, because work is, is so easily a highly reinforced addiction in our modern culture, uh, whether or not it, it's really you're doing it for the love of and it's positive for you and people around you or whether it's an addiction, the best way to find out is to take a break from it. Because when we're chasing dopamine, it's nearly impossible for us to see true cause and effect. But when we take a break and get out of that vicious cycle of kind of chasing those rewards, we can really step back and go, huh, gee, I I, I don't, you know, that's not really what I meant, or I'm not sure I really want to live my life, you know, like that with my head, uh, you know, in my screen for that many hours mm-hmm, a day. Mm-hmm. I do think that this is critical um, because without those times away, it's just super easy to lose perspective and to get caught up. I mean, what feels like is purposeful, self-determined action, but in fact can really be the sacrifice of our autonomous ability to choose. I guess one way that we know that we've uh, crossed a threshold is when we decide we need help. Mm -hmm. And such was the case with your patient, Jacob, um, who you, you opened the book with the story of Jacob and his masturbation machines. And, you know, he, he, he begins with a, a metal rod connected to a record player. And on the other end is a coil and a soft cloth. He can control the speed of the record player, which enables him to maintain a pre-orgasm state for hours. And then he takes it further. And, and, and we have a clip, Anna, from, from the, the audio book. Sometimes when I play with electricity in my job, I can feel something in my hands. And I am curious. I begin to wonder what it would feel like to touch my penis with a current. So I start to research online, and I discover a whole community of people using electrical stimulation. I attach electrodes and wires to my stereo system. I try an alternating current using the voltage from the stereo system. Then, instead of simple wire, I attach electrodes made of cotton in salty water. The higher the volume on the stereo, the higher the current. At low volume, I feel nothing. At higher volume, it is painful. 
in between, I can orgasm from the sensation. My eyes got wide. I couldn't help it. But this is very dangerous, he continued. I realize if a power outage, this could lead to power surge, and then I could get hurt. People have died doing this. Online, I I learn I can buy a medical kit, like a, what do you call them, those machines to treat pain? A TENS unit? Yes, a TENS unit for $600. Or I can make my own for $20. I decide to make my own. I buy the material. I make the machine. It works. It works well. He paused. But then the real discovery. I can program it. I can create custom routines and synchronize the music with the feeling. What kinds of routines? Hand job, blow job, you name it. And then I discover not just my routines. I go online and download other people's routines and share mine. Some people write programs to sync up with porn videos so you feel what you're watching, just like virtual reality. It's such a powerful section of the book and, and, and kind of we're all cringing on some level, right? Yeah, and, and, right. And, it's, it's, and it was so bold of, of you and your editors to, to, you know, to put this at the, at the opening, but that you go on to say, I imagine him attached by his genitals through the internet to a room full of strangers. I feel horror, compassion, and a vague and disquieting sense that it could have been me. Mm. Why did you want to open the book with the story of Jacob? I wanted to draw an analogy between this wonderful man with this terrible sex addiction and the rest of us who in various ways with our own devices, our own masturbation machines are now getting all of our needs met without any other human being. And I, I wanted to to really communicate that this idea of, of addiction is not something that happens to other people. It's really happening to all of us. I was struck in listening again. I couldn't help but think of Mark Zuckerberg and his metaverse. Yeah. And the ways the ways in which, um, you know, we are literally moving toward um, a world in which we will have these programs um, in virtual reality to, to meet our basic physiologic needs um, that will invariably isolate us further from each other if we aren't really careful. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, what's so astonishing is that now this is like a fringe sort of, you know, uh, hacker community of some kind. Right. But in a matter of years, this will be widely available, you know, haptic feedback suits and it's all, you know, in yeah. development, right? Right, and I can tell you too that it's not very far in the future that the number of young men, also young women, but the number of young men, I should just say men in general, who are spending hours every day consuming pornography is just astronomical. And the number of people struggling with severe uh, sex addiction in various forms is growing every year. So um, this is, this is a real problem. I mean, this, you know, this patient of mine, I mean, he became suicidal, right? He, his desire to stop, his inability to stop, the ways in which his behavior was contrary to his values. This is a married man who loves his wife. He's a brilliant scientist, right? I mean, his life just started to go completely off the rails because of uh, his sex addiction. So this is a real problem. We're not talking about it enough. Well, 
that is a, a perfect segue to big idea number two, which is that we're titillating ourselves to death. This fine-tuned pleasure-pain balance of ours has evolved over millions of years to help us approach pleasure and avoid pain. It's what's kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. But here's the problem. We no longer live in that world. We now live in a world of overwhelming abundance. The access, quantity, variety, and potency of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors has never been greater including drugs that didn't exist before. Texting, tweeting, gaming, gambling, sugar shopping, vaping, voyeuring, the list is endless. Online products with their flashing lights, celebratory sounds, laudatory likes, and bottomless bowls promise ever greater rewards just a finger click away. They're engineered to be addictive. The smartphone is the equivalent of the hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. If you haven't met your drug of choice yet, it's coming soon to a website near you. Yet despite this increased access to all these feel-good drugs and behaviors, or as I hypothesize, because of it, we are more miserable than ever. Rates of depression, anxiety, physical pain, and suicide are increasing all over the world, especially in rich nations. According to the World Happiness Report, which ranks 156 countries by how happy their citizens perceive themselves to be, people living in the United States reported being less happy in 2018 than they were in 2008. Other countries with similar measures of wealth, social support, and life expectancy saw similar decreases in self-reported happiness scores, including Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Japan, New Zealand, and Italy. Researchers interviewed nearly 150,000 people in 26 countries to determine the prevalence of generalized anxiety disorder, defined as excessive and uncontrollable worry that adversely affected their lives. They found that richer countries had higher rates of anxiety than poor ones, and the number of new cases of depression worldwide has increased 50% between 1990 and 2017. The highest increases in new cases were seen in regions with the highest income, especially North America. Our compulsive overconsumption has led not just to increased psychological suffering, we are literally consuming ourselves to death. 70% of world global deaths are attributable to modifiable behavioral risk factors like smoking, physical inactivity, and diet. There are now more people worldwide who are obese than who are underweight. The poor and undereducated especially those living in rich nations, are most susceptible to the problem of compulsive overconsumption because they have easy access to high-reward, high-potency, high-novelty drugs at the same time that they lack access to meaningful work, safe housing, quality education, affordable health care, and race and class equity before the law. This creates a dangerous nexus of addiction risk. Over the course of my 20-year career, I have seen more and more patients including otherwise healthy young people with loving families, elite education, and relative wealth, presenting with depression, anxiety, and full body pain. We are titillating ourselves to death. The smartphone is the modern-day hypodermic needle. Now, there is a line destined for a dust jacket of a best-selling book, (laughs) (laughs) which is exactly where where it landed. Yeah. Nice how sometimes those things work out. 
Absolutely. What's amazing to me is that we're all part of this massive, large-scale experiment mm -hmm. in, in what happens when you give billions of people access to constant visual stimulation that delivers social affirmation, gaming experiences, day trading. And this has all happened in a, in a decade. You know, it's, yes. it's, just, it's, it's astonishing. And, you know, it's easy to see this as a story of of kind of devious, conniving CEOs hacking us. And, and, and certainly the CEO should be held accountable and the executives. Mm -hmm. And But, but it, it seems to me like this is partly what happens when new technologies that happen to deliver things that are, you know, Stone Age brains want to compulsively fixate on. When they're introduced, it's an incredibly powerful and, and kind of destabilizing result. Absolutely. I mean, they're, you know, these tech companies do not really need to promote or advertise their products. The products sink so naturally into our own hard wiring that it's as if we were made for each other. But, but the result, you know, although there are many wonderful aspects to the technology, which, you know, we could enumerate for days, there's also this terrible dark side I, I really hope that resistance isn't futile, right? <laughs> because we need to find out some way how to optimize the good parts of the technology and, and resist uh, the, the really damaging parts, which are, which are real. And, and we've all become, I think, somewhat more aware of, of what's happening because of the extraordinary documentary film, The Social Dilemma, in which you appeared um, as yeah. an expert. And uh, I think we have a, have a clip of that. Here's the thing. Social media is a drug. I mean, we have a basic biological imperative to connect with other people that directly affects the release of dopamine and the reward pathway. Millions of years of evolution um, are behind that system to get us to come together and live in communities, to find mates, to propagate our species. So there's no doubt that a vehicle like social media which optimizes this connection between people is going to have the potential for addiction. I'm worried about my kids. And if you have kids, I'm worried about your kids. Armed with all the knowledge that I have and all of the experience, I am fighting my kids about the time that they spend on phones and on the computer. I will say to my son, how many hours do you think you're spending on your phone? He'll be like, oh, it's like half an hour. It's half an hour tops. I'd say, Upwards, hour, hour and a half. Okay, I looked at the screen report a couple weeks ago and it was like three hours and 45 minutes. That, I don't think that's, no, per day on average? Yeah. Should I go get it right now? There's not a day that goes by that I don't remind my kids about the pleasure-pain balance, about dopamine deficit states, about the risk of addiction. Uh, Moment of truth. Two hours, 15 minutes per day. Let's see. Actually, I've been losing a lot today. Last seven so, days. That's probably why. Instagram, six hours, 13 minutes. Okay, so my Instagram's worse. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I think it, it is appropriate for you to be worried about my kids because <laughs> my kids are spending a lot of time interacting with, with, with their electronic devices. But um, how is it going with your, with your kids and, mm -hmm. and, and, the, and yeah. the nation's kids? Right, the nation's kids. You know, it's been interesting. I mean, we, we took a very hard line very early and were very restrictive. Our, our kids did not have any devices till they got to high school. 
And then they each got a, a laptop and they each got their a phone. They had to pay for their own phones and their own uh, phone plans. And that's that's been true for all of our kids. It's been interesting to see, you know, we have four kids that um, our youngest child in particular has really struggled to balance his consumption, um, you know, to not use during class, to not use at times when it's inappropriate to use. And his, you know, his grades are are showing that. Um, so even though we waited and were very restrictive and did a lot of education and have a lot of uh, sort of digital etiquette norms that we enforce in the home, we nonetheless have a child who's um, has intemperate, what I, what I would call self-destructive use. So it, it, it speaks to uh, the variability um, among individuals for uh, addiction to tech and to these devices, some people will see it and be able to self-correct or at least try to move in that direction. And others really will not and will fall prey to the most damaging aspects. And that's true for almost any addictive substance, right? Most people can consume alcohol in moderation, don't become alcoholics. But some people do, you know, some people by virtue of nature, nurture, neighborhood will, uh, will become alcoholics. So there's that. But I would say, in general, I think that we need to do more um, as families, as parents, as school systems, um, as governments, to support individuals in moderating or abstaining um, from use. Uh, To draw an analogy, if you think about cigarettes, you know, we are not Mm -hmm. allowed to sell cigarettes to minors. Mm -hmm. Companies who make cigarettes are not allowed to market cigarettes to minors, Cigarettes have warnings on the packages. There's widespread education um, about the harms of cigarette smoking. There's also a very effective taxation of mm-hmm. cigarettes. And it turns out that even addicted people are price sensitive. And as the price goes up, consumption goes down, and addictive behaviors are um, either resolved, resolving, or routed to some other substance. And I think we need to use those kinds of analogies to drugs that are known to be addictive, like cigarettes and translate those into the the realm of um, these tech devices and these digital products and really begin to think about like, you know, how are we going to restrict access for eight-year-old children with an iPad? Uh, Because I think we could all agree that no one would want to give an iPad to an eight-year-old for 24-7 unrestricted use. I mean, I think we could all agree that that would be very injurious so where and how and when will we restrict it? Mm-hmm. I think those are the mm-hmm. conversations that we need to have. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about not just the medium or the device, but the activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because uh, Nir Eyal in his last book made this interesting case that if you look at a graph of the amount of time that children have to play with each other unsupervised by adults, that number was very high in the 50s when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was meaningfully lower. And today it's much, much, much lower than it was when we were growing up, right? Yeah. So, so kids are constantly being, their activities are constantly supervised by adults and they don't have this time to, to basically spontaneously play and create with other children. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, and, and I, I'm playing the contrarian here, but, yeah. but there's an argument that some activities online, and, I, and this, to me, this was most pronounced during the, the epidemic we've all been through, um, is that kids, we all were so isolated and that 
for at least some of our kids, I, I thought that maybe this is me rationalizing as a parent, you know, but that, that hearing them, you know, playing and joking and, and, and modeling leadership and supporting each other and f- solving problems together in this virtual space was such an important kind of social connection for them. And, and I think in some cases, it can be more dangerous for children to be deprived of that social connection. You know, I absolutely agree with you. I think that there are many ways for people and children to be online that's creative, that's productive, that fosters real, intimate, adaptive human connection. Um, In a way, the internet has allowed people to stay more connected despite geographic dislocation, despite our really strange world in which people go to work and then come home and they don't work in the home and they don't work with their children like they did, you know, 150 years ago. Um, And, you know, families can stay more connected throughout the day. Friends can stay more connected. So I think there's a lot of great stuff that the internet and that this technology um, has allowed. The other thing that I would say is I've been, it's been very curious for me to see the ways in which somehow social media has been vilified I find that bizarre. I mean, there there are healthy and adaptive ways to use social media, just like there are healthy and adaptive ways to use video games, to watch YouTube, to watch Netflix, whatever. You know, so it's not really like it's oh, it's social media is bad, or oh, mm-hmm. video games yeah. are bad, or you know, it's it's not like that. It's it's the nature of the attachment. Quantity matters. Frequency matters. Uh, the content of the material being consumed matters. But I think the key, you know, and I think the neuroscience helps with this and also sort of the, the, the wisdom of recovery, the key is to really get people and institutions to sort of say, okay, what seems to be working and, and what seems to really not be working? And I think what's clear what is not working is people consuming in isolation for many hours each day to the exclusion of connecting with real people to the exclusion of creating something. So just a consumptive, reflexive, reactive, very emotion-driven, lizard-brain-driven type of activity where nothing actually gets created or done, no real connections get made. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, you know, we need to be worried about and that we are seeing um, with some people who just get lost in it. You know, it, it strikes me reading your book that there, there, there are kind of two use cases for, for, for this book, which really I think is perfectly timed. I mean, the first is how we can deal with, with serious addictions that, that so many more and more people are facing. And, and, and the second is how do we navigate our lives more effectively in this world of ever-increasing abundance? And just the knowledge of how this hedonic set point, how, how the little neuroadaptive mm-hmm. gremlins work is, is, is so helpful. And it's, it's caused me to modify my behavior just in the last couple of weeks of having, read, having read your book. My takeaway is we just have to get used to the feeling of resisting cravings. Yeah. Right. That it's that it's just the nature of our experience that we are we will be presented with delectable little experiences, you know, donuts, whether they're physical donuts or, or virtual video donuts and overconsumption is going to cause us to feel bad. And and we can just recognize this in ourselves. And I want to say to my kids, OK, I see you just watch a, a series of YouTube videos. 
and now I see you kind of frustrated writhing on the couch. I think I know yeah. how you're. I think I know how you're feeling right now. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Not only not only do you know how they're feeling, but you know why. So I've gotten tons of emails from folks, readers all over the world, and one of my favorite is a, a reader who said, "I've been trying to quit smoking." And learning about the balance and the gremlins has really helped me because now whenever I'm craving a cigarette, I just imagine these little gremlins jumping up and down on the pain side of my balance. And he said, and it's really sort of dorky, but for some reason that really helps me resist having a cigarette in that moment. So there is a way in which having a framework for understanding our experience can really change our behavior. So I, I've been intermittent fasting now for, for a few years. And it used to be that when I felt hungry, I, th I thought, oh, well, this is terrible. My body is craving food. And if it doesn't mm -hmm. get food, so, you know, something terrible is going to happen. I must feed my body. Now I associate the hunger feeling with something positive that's happening yeah. in my body, like with ketosis and there's cellular repair going on. There's a whole bunch of positive things happening in my body. The same has happened with, with, with the feeling of being cold, right? I've, like I, I've read about that it's actually quite healthy to, to feel cold and, 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 and it generates uh, neurons and has all these positive effects. So, so now when I feel cold, I think, oh, this is, I feel more alive. And this is, you know, mm. so I, I think that we can choose to reframe some of these feelings, right? In ways that make us more, able to navigate. And my gosh, we need help in doing this because as you were saying earlier, what's coming in the next 10 years, if we're cacti in, in a rainforest, as mm. I think somebody in your book said, which I love yeah. that, that mm -hmm. a cactus being evolved to survive in an environment with, with not much water, uh, we're evolved to be in an environment with not that much positive stimulation. We're about to have a downpour. Yeah, right. I think it's it's really, really important that we figure out how to, how to navigate it. We see this in the numbers, you, you say a study of 150,000 people revealed that the number of new cases of depression worldwide increased 50% between 1990 and 2017. The highest increases were seen in regions with the highest income, especially North America. What happened between 1990 and 2017? I mean, well, the internet happened, of course, mm -hmm. and then smartphones. Are there other variables, do you think, that, that are driving this increase in depression? I think it's all of it. You know, it's it's a more efficient supply chain. It's access to not just new drugs that didn't exist before, like things on the internet, but also more potent forms of old drugs um, from alcohol to cigarettes to cannabis to cocaine to opioids. You know, I think it's it's also the nature of work has changed, at least for large segments of the economy in developed nations. I mean, many of us don't even move our bodies for significant parts of our day. You know, we can, with voice command, really, um, you know, turn on and off lights and adjust temperature. And and all of these things are just, again, not what our bodies were intended for, not how we were meant to, to pass our time. And then on top of it, you've got a sort of a cultural credo that says if you're experiencing any pain at all, whether psychological or physical, there must be something wrong with you that, you know, pain is dangerous and that, um, you know, you should feel good all the time. And if you're not feeling good, then you should take a pill or you should change your life. Or so I think that that also, you know, has gone along with it. Like we, as you, you know, as you talked about, like now when you do intermittent fasting or you feel cold, you've now learned to tell yourself, oh, this is actually good for me. And I think that's the reframe that 
that we need. And that's why there's a whole chapter in the book about pressing on the pain side of the balance mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. that's really healthy for us in small doses is actually to invite pain into our lives. Um, because when we do that, our little dopamine factories, they, you know, they get firing again, right? They say, oh, look, there's an injury coming and I need to protect the body and we need to upregulate all those feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters. So I think we have to, as a practice, um, strive for a, a kind of a, a, a sort of a modern asceticism. Now, let me just say that in the modern world, what asceticism amounts to is going for, you know, let's say several hours at a time, not plugged into a device or listening to music or any other form of stimulation. Like that's ascetic for us now because we're all constantly hyper-stimulated in so many ways. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah, no, no, for, I mean, for me, uh, and and this is oversharing, but I think in the context of all your oversharing, <laughs> I, really, I really feel empowered to overshare. Great. The, um, I have found myself on the John, also known as the throne, <laughs> um, without my, my phone. And I've had this thought like, oh my gosh, this is going to be, minutes will pass. <laughs> and where is the phone? You know, and it, it, like yeah. this moment of panic. And then, and then right. of course, I think, this is insane, <laughs> right? How could I get this? Yeah, trust me, you're, you're not alone on, uh, in being, and sitting on the throne as being a major smartphone time. I think many, many mothers across the globe have lost their teenage children to the bathroom uh, where they're just, you know, instead of helping with the dishes, they're, on their phones. Don't reach for your phone just yet. We'll be back with Anna's third big idea in just a moment. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Let's do a quick recap. Anna's first big idea is that pleasure and pain are like two sides of a balance. Press on the pleasure side and your brain races to restore homeostasis by hitting you with a dose of pain. Her second big idea is that in a world of overwhelming abundance, it's easy to throw that balance out of whack. So what do we do? Well, now in her third and final big idea, she shares how we can reset that balance. A patient of mine, a bright and thoughtful young man in his early 20s, came to see me for debilitating anxiety and depression. Dropped out of college, he was living with his parents and vaguely contemplating suicide. He was also playing video games most of every day and late into every night. 20 years ago, the first thing I would have done for a patient like this was prescribe an antidepressant. Today, I recommended something altogether different, a dopamine fast. 
I suggested he abstain from all screens, including video games, for one month. What? He said, why would I do that? Playing video games is the only thing that gives me any relief. Well, I said, let me explain. That's when I told him about the pleasure-pain balance, the neuroscience of addiction, and the dopamine deficit state. He was game to give it a try. He came back a month after having abstained from all screens, reporting feeling better than he had in years. Less anxiety, less depression. Why? Because when he stopped bombarding his reward pathway with dopamine, he gave his brain the opportunity to restore homeostasis. In other words, a level balance. He was more surprised than anyone that he felt better. Why? Because it's hard to see cause and effect when we're chasing dopamine. It's only after we've taken a break from our drug of choice that we're able to see the true impact of our consumption on our lives and the people around us. So dopamine fasting, I I think this has become rather chic in Silicon Valley. I think I've seen a few articles to this effect. Mm -hmm. Is this at the top of your list of tools? I've been recommending a 30-day abstinence trial for my patients for 20 years, long before it hit the Silicon Valley headlines as a dopamine fast. But I was I was fascinated to see it come into sort of modern parlance, um, again, because I had been doing it for so long just in my clinical work. But I, I do think there's a lot of merit in it. The Silicon Valley version often takes uh, the form of like living in a dark cave for seven days. So literally no stimulation at all. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I do is I ask patients to identify uh, that drug or drugs uh, with which they have a problem of compulsive overconsumption and to eliminate that drug for a month, uh, knowing that they'll feel worse before they feel better. But the goal is essentially to do a kind of a personalized biological experiment to discover whether or not by resetting reward pathways, they can can feel better just by eliminating their drug of choice. And the beauty of the intervention is that about 80% of my patients come back feeling better just by eliminating their drug of choice alone without me having to prescribe a pill or do any kind of in-depth psychoanalysis. It's just, nope, cut this drug out of your life for 30 days and you will feel better, and most people do. And that's really powerful because then I don't have to persuade people anymore that they should temper their use or even potentially abstain long-term. People collect their own data. They have their own information. That they, They've lived it. They've seen the impact. You know, I, I'm no longer having to persuade. I'm just having to essentially coach and, um, and observe and support as people then try to figure out the next step, like, okay, do I want to continue to abstain or can I reintegrate this substance back in my life with moderation? And mm-hmm. then we talk about what that would look like. And it, it's so interesting to me that I think you, I think I remember you're saying that as many as 80% of your patients do choose at the end of a month of abstinence to continue to recreationally use the substance, whether it's, you know, marijuana or alcohol or what have you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm impressed that that many people can manage the, the their addiction. Going oh forward. well, they can't necessarily manage it. So in, yeah. in choosing in choosing to go back to trying to use in moderation doesn't mean that they successfully manage it. Yeah. But what what it you know what it is is just some more data gathering, right? Um, some people, I would say, a very small minority can 
moderate long term, but the vast majority will be able to moderate for a while, but then will eventually sink back into kind of compulsive overuse, addictive use, um, and then try to reset the balance again until they get to a place where they finally recognize, you know what, I just I just can't drink alcohol, right? Yeah, I just yeah. can't use cannabis. I just can't play this game League of Legends on my computer. Uh, because no matter how many barriers I put in place, uh, once I'm back to it, I'm I'm falling again. Well, for those of us who want to hear the siren song, you recommend self-binding, <laughs> right? Uh, if we don't want to go cold turkey, we love our League of Legends, which I haven't played, but uh, <laughs> that self-binding is, there are techniques we can use to, to limit access. Yeah. And, um, you know, a big emphasis in the book is moderation and how to moderate. And I, I felt that was a really important topic um, not not just because some people <clears throat> with addiction really are able to moderate after a period of abstinence, and that period of abstinence really is key. That has to come first um, in order to reset reward pathways and see tr- true cause and effect. But also because there are so many digital devices now that we essentially cannot abstain from, and if we're gonna if we're gonna participate in the modern world, so therefore we really have to figure out how to moderate. Right? It's like moderation becomes essential. When you think about a smartphone, I mean, I held out and didn't get a smartphone for uh, almost two decades, but in the last two years had to get one in order to be be able to prescribe uh, medication in my institution. I literally could no longer prescribe meds without a smartphone. So there has to be a way in which we each figure out how to maintain balance and where that balance is. And it's probably going to be a a little bit different for each of us. Well, I'll tell you the... um... At the Next Big Idea Club, our team has been discussing your book. And uh, this morning we were sharing um, smartphone screen time stats. And the numbers were shocking. One of my colleagues spent 47 hours on his phone last week. Uh. Now, in his defense, some of that is listening to books and podcasts. But but, uh, what's particularly interesting to me is that Apple allows you to set a time limit for a particular app. And a lot of my colleagues have these limits turned on. But apparently they're overriding them in some way because uh, I have a team member who, who had a 20-minute daily limit for Instagram, and yet he managed to spend seven hours on Instagram last <laughs> week. This is a very hardworking, impressive young man. So what's going on here? Is there? Uh, I wonder if there are solutions to this problem. Yeah, so I do not think that these limits uh, setting fundamentally ends up working because it, it feels like a taking away, right? It feels restrictive because somehow it comes from the app itself. I think a better method is the same intermittent fasting method that you describe for your food consumption. Instead of setting limits on this or that app, we we consolidate our screen time to discrete hours of the day. During those hours, we can consume an infinite amount continuously. But outside of those hours, we don't engage with the screen at all. And it's really tough to do, but I think it, it works better. Of course, the other thing we could do, Anna, is we could socially shame my colleagues. I, I hear social shaming can be a positive force, which we're doing. I haven't mentioned them by name, Michael and Jeremy, but, <laughs> but uh, this may, maybe some social shaming would help. Well, um, you, you know, I write about shame in the book. Shame is one of our most pro-social emotions, but also potentially one of our most destructive emotions. But there certainly is a role for shame in solving this problem of compulsive overconsumption. 
And I think one of the ways to do it um, is to evolve a digital etiquette. So times when it's okay to be on our devices and on screens and other times when it's just not, right? Um, and the good thing about us collectively agreeing on when when it's okay to be on and when it's not okay is that when we're not on our devices, we'll be not on our devices with other people not on our devices. One mm -hmm, of the big mm -hmm. problems now is that even if we want to get off our devices and let's say, you know, kick our kids out of the house and go out to the alley to play kick the can, well, nobody else is there. Um, you can't play kick the can by yourself. So I think we need to converge together on a digital etiquette such that we have sort of socially accepted spaces where we're not on devices and when we can rely on each other to be present without devices. And I think that that's what we need to move toward. No, that makes a huge amount of sense. And uh, my gosh, I was having wonderful memories of playing kick the can, which, <laughs> yeah. my, which my children have never, have never yeah, played. Right. Uh, but, uh, but I just, I remember sitting behind those trees, the, the feeling of yeah. the bark on your hands, you know, right. um, I was really interested in this idea that choosing some degree of pain, the choosing to experience pain may be part of the solution to this to this uh, this balance problem, um, and I I've always thought of masochism as a as a clever adaptation to a world in which pain is inevitable, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of my takeaway, you know, from what I've learned from your book is that, you know, there is this kind of you know zero sum game to you know, to some degree. Like we will there will be pain on the other side of pleasure, mm -hmm. and you can either if we want to feel good, we can either pursue good feelings directly. And then feel bad, mm -hmm. and and probably also feel shame, mm -hmm. or or we can seek out challenges, which which may also also involve sort of near term pain, and then feel a kind of positive glow. Well, not only that, but when we invite pain into our lives, you know, in small to moderate doses at whatever level our individual brains and bodies can tolerate, what we do is we ch we change our hedonic set point to the side of pleasure. Whereas when we choose pleasure, we ultimately, through iterative repetitions, change our hedonic set point to the side of pain. So, so it's really much, much better to press on the pain side of the balance as a way to get your dopamine indirectly than to seek dopamine directly with, with highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense. Now, I've, one of my observations in my 54 years on the planet has been that in life, we're all inevitably fall into cycles and, and e we either fall into vicious cycles or virtuous cycles. Mm -hmm. And really the trick is to get in, in virtuous cycles and try That's to stay, right. try to stay in them. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. um, and I, and when I think about it, I think one of the things that's characteristic of virtuous cycles, such as like, you know, you go running, you get in better shape and then working out becomes more fun. And so you work out more and you get in better shape, right? You have this yeah. sort of virtuous thing that yeah. it seems to be characteristic of most of the virtuous cycles that I've experienced in my life, that they involve seeking out challenge. I mean, choosing, choosing some degree of near-term pain. That's right. My, your experience resonates with my experience and that of my patients as one of my patients so aptly quoted once to me, he said, if there's one thing I've learned from recovery, it's that the right way is usually the hard way. And I think that's right. You know, it, it's the, and we, and we need friction in our lives. You know, we're, we're such natural strivers. We need challenge. We need meaning and purpose. And we can get that through suffering um, as long as we reframe our orientation on the meaning of that suffering. 
Um, and, and so I think, you know, that what you say is, is, is true. You've said that you found that there's power in acknowledging that you're never going to be fully comfortable in the world. It's always going to be painful and unpleasant to some mm. degree. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. And that kind of acceptance. I mean, this is partly about expectation management. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, and this is a kind of a Buddhist concept, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of our existence, but it's really hard to call on that in moment to moment, especially when we expect things to be a certain way. And then the reality doesn't measure up to our expectations, whether it's the Thanksgiving meal or whatever it is. But I think there's an incredible peace that can descend on us when in the middle of the Thanksgiving meal that is not going maybe exactly according to plan, you can just say to yourself, yeah, you know, that that's life. Like uh, nothing is perfect. This meal is indeed has some good things about it and some things that I wish were other. And that is the nature of human existence. I think that's very liberating. Well, Anna, thank you for taking time out of your teaching and psychiatry practice and Dr. Pimple Pop reviewing <laughs> to be with us today. I so enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks for uh, reading the book and for the really thoughtful questions and uh, for just a really good conversation. 